The Aqua Cave presents WCW Must Die. Starring Conan. Go play with yourself. Samurai Cop. Who's got the mace? Buff Bagwell. Yeah, my whole life is pretty much a show. Franchise Shane Douglas. <laughs> you just got your ass franchised. David Arquette. I was the heavyweight champion of the world! Mike Awesome. Yeah, the crippled canyon. Canyon? Yeah, I got thrown off that cage. And it hurt. Terry Funk. Oh, Blue! Daddy's coming home! Chris Candido. But there's no Macho Man! Tammy. How about I show you mine? And you owe me one. Mike Tanay. Show us, Tammy! Vampiro. Yeah, you know, Steve. The actor. Big T. The juice. Indistinct! Mean Gene Oberlin. Someone find me Eric Bischoff. DDP. Yo, turn the camera off, monkey. Scott Hudson. It's at the top of the hour, Tony, for Pete's sake! David Flair. This is Champ's Room. Andrew McCarthy. Vincent. I've got an idea, Vincent. Norman Smiley. This is my business. The cat. May I please have your attention, please? Lex Luger. Come on, two more. Total package style. Jeff Jarrett. Who died and made you, Commissioner Slappy? Tony Schiavone. The greatest athlete in the history of our sport. It's Sting! Mark Madden. I was wrong. I apologize. Sting. The actor. I feel like romping, stomping, graveyard destruction. Rick Fleer as Rick Flair. Not your dad. Eric Bischoff. What's the matter, Sid? Can't find your scissors? I said, what's the matter, Sid? Can't find your scissors? Hulk Hogan. Terry Bollea. The NB stands for new blood, and I'm taking care of Bollea, dude. Kevin Nash. Hey, kid. Is your mom home? I mean, look at the adjective. Mom. Vince... Russo. That dirty, stinking, shock-infested creek. You keep your hands to yourself, young lady. I am the Batman! Aqua lads and aqua lasses, it is time to spelunk into the deepest, darkest areas of the aqua cave for a brand new episode of WCW Must Die. My name is Johnny C, and as always, I will be your host for this program, which is now found exclusively here in the Aqua Cave. You know, when we started up this channel, or feed, or whatever you want to call it, I had a a lot of stuff stored up in the old back catalog, if you will. And so, I was able to dump 
a pretty decent amount. I think it was like two episodes of WCW Must Die and the first episode of UPN that had been recorded for quite some time. And ever since then, I've been in a really fun position of being able to create content that's sort of like first run for the Aqua Cave, if you will. And this will be the first episode of WCW Must Die that was created exclusively to be released here on this feed. And if you're coming to us on the North-South Connection Podcast Network, I want to give another shout-out to them and say a big thank you uh, for letting me start WCW Must Die over there on that feed. And please, 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 as you're listening to this, if you haven't already, go over there, subscribe, follow them, do all those fun things that you do for people that do podcasts. Because if it wasn't for them, you wouldn't have this. Now... When I say we're recording this exclusively for the Aqua Cave, I suppose I could you could say and come back at me and say, well, Johnny, that's a little bit of a fib. And you would only know this because I'm telling you, but this episode has actually been recorded in piecemeal all over the time stream. Meaning, some of it was recorded for the North-South Connection, some of it's recorded for the Aqua Cave. I wonder if you're going to be able to figure out where we uh, split and differ. I highly doubt it, because I'm like a really, really good editor, and there's no way you could possibly ever find out. <laughs> Hi, this is Johnny C. from the North-South Connection Podcast Network, and I'm here with a new episode of W Stuff. <laughs> so yeah, there's no way you're ever going to be able to figure out when this stuff was recorded. It's not like old pieces and new pieces are going to be edited together or something like that. It's going to be one seamless, smooth transition from one set piece to the other. But if you're coming at us for the very first time, let's set the stage and see where we were coming out of WCW Thunder last week. You might recall that we left on a rather happy note with the Deadly Alliance off to enjoy a fun weekend in the Hamptons with Vincent. Vincent! It's a hell of a weekend! We need to do it again! So in this episode, the boys are back in town, but the corpse of Vince Russo has learned how to dance. No, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm, I'm going to discontinue the weekend at Bernie shtick for this episode, I have decided. We are coming at you, though, with an episode of Monday Nitro that is mired in controversy. This episode is a very, 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 very... Well, that's probably like three too many varies, but it's a nice, very memorable episode that involves Ric Flair capturing... The World Heavyweight Championship for the 16th time, and then promptly losing it for the 16th time. Spoiler alert for the beginning and ending segments. But it wouldn't be Monday Nitro if the strap didn't switch hands a couple times. Hey, Vince, I got an idea. Why don't we do some strap stuff tonight? (laughs) Kevin Nash back on the booking team. So it's May 29th in the year 2000. Coming at you live from the E-Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, where famously they don't allow music. We start with a recap of the events of Thunder, and I notice right away that it's set to some pretty sweet music that could have easily been boss music in a Final Fantasy video game. Further grievance that I have with the world right now, not too far back on the Multiverse of Fabulousness, another program here on the North-South Connection Podcast Network, Hosted by moi, me, as Eric Bischoff would say. Kyle Litke and I, friend of the show, uh, created our own WWE RPG video game, which can be found, of course, in the archives at this point. Week later, WWE, the company, announces they're going to make a role-playing video game. Now, I'm not saying we deserve any royalties 
But I guess I'm saying that we do. So, to bring back an old gimmick, I have decided to start a class action lawsuit against the WWE, of which I hope to get all my listeners to join. If you'd like to join this fictional lawsuit, hit me up on Twitter, at the Johnny C. But, nonetheless, back to the real world of professional wrestling, Kevin Nash left Nitro, the WCW heavyweight champion of the world. We start our new content in a parking lot with a limousine that's parking uh, horizontally. Yeah, it's just it's taking up a lot of space. It's not driving properly. It seems dangerous. And I don't even know if Argyle's driving the limo because there's no time for such chicanery because Ric Flair jumps immediately out of the backseat, I think with the limo still in motion, and starts yelling at an unseen individual uh, in the limousine. Flair isn't so much yelling as he's also berating this individual and ordering them around, saying things like, This I command! So I'm assuming it's maybe like his worst enemy or his most hated foe in the uh, limo. And as Flair runs away, we find that it's his wife, Beth Fleer. So I guess I probably wasn't too far off. As Rick sprints away, Reed Flair pops out of the limo and gives mathematical proof to the old saying, like father, like son, because he also begins immediately yelling at Beth Fleer, telling him to listen to her husband. Rick is out of the view of the camera, which means R&B security is free and clear to jump in to Fleernap, the innocent family. As Vince Russo says, Welcome to Salt Lake City! And they escond away with the Fleer family held hostage. We get our regular opening Nitro video, and... Dun, dun, da, 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 da. Things are off to a howling start. <laughs> what an awful transition. Um, it's new WCW Strapmaster Kevin Nash with an FUNB t-shirt on. And so I'm wondering if he's come to some sort of profit-sharing agreement with Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea on the proceeds of this shirt. Madden wonders aloud what caused Ric Flair to collapse weeks ago on Thunder. I wonder, internally, if they'll ever even address it. I notice, as Kevin Nash grabs a stick to start talking, that someone in the crowd has taken, to des- taken the time to design a rather involved and intricate sign that says, Kevin Nash is the chosen champ. This individual will shortly learn that that was indeed time well spent. Out comes the other half of the Deadly Alliance. It's Big Papa Pump with his freaks. And his freaks have the U.S. strap. So, finally, the belt makes an appearance. All jesting aside, what you have here in the ring is a pretty interesting scenario of what would later become known in the WWF as the two-man power trip. You've got two really over stars in this case baby faces and not heels, but considering that there's an entourage of like 40 heels on the roster, I think having a power group involving two baby faces on top of the promotion carrying the two championships is an interesting scenario that could honestly take you through like six months to a year's worth of programming that eventually uh, you know, ends with the, the two-man power trip explodes. It's WCW Green, and the two-man power trip explodes! 
But, um, you know, they wouldn't make it to greed. But greed would indeed cause the company to explode. But I, again, digress. It's about, like I said, a year's worth of storyline. But it's a Russo book show, so they'll probably be at odds by the end of the night. But I don't know. Well, I know, but I'm not going to spoil anything that far ahead. Even though I already spoiled the title change. I'm I'm a walking contradiction. And I ain't got no rights. Anywho, Nash thanks Big Papa Pump for the assist on Thunder. Eight weeks ago, this battle began. Luger's got a destroyed face. DDP's personal and professional life is controlled by Eric Bischoff. Hulk's got a retirement match at the Bash. And Vampiro wants Sting on fire. Then you got moi, Kevin Nash. Well, surprisingly, to the shock of no one, things didn't quite go your way. And guess what, folks? You didn't count on Big Papa Pump being an ally. And then I wondered to myself, and not to disparage the character of Scott Steiner, the person, but you guys really think a Big Papa Pump year 2000 would be an ally? I mean, he's definitely okay with freak-on-freak altercations, but I would wager there's no way in hell that he's an ally to all. And I'm not going to take the time to investigate further and will allow this slanderous hypothesis to float in the ether. Now, Kevin Nash makes a call out. You would think it would be to sworn arch nemesis Vince Russo, perhaps Eric Bischoff, or maybe to uh, his buddy Hunter. Because Lord knows he'll say whatever he wants on a live mic. But he calls out the nature boy. The nature boy abides. This must have been why he was in such a hurry. He should have popped out in the limo and said, I'm late. I'm late. For a very important date. Woo! You know, at least we would have known that that he was in a hurry because there was a, a ceremony about to be held in his honor. But alas, I digress again. As Flair enters the ring, he bows to the freaks. So he must have some sort of inclination that Beth Fleer is not able to see what's happening on the TV screen. He indicates that this trio is a threat to the whole world. And yeah, judging that the population of the planet is pretty much evenly split between men and women, I would argue that they're at least a threat to half of the world. But Flair does indeed give a uh, a final stamp on the storyline from a few weeks ago and indicates that he was sidelined for medical reasons unknown. Let me repeat that. Medical reasons unknown. And I'll say it normal, just so it really sinks in. Medical reasons unknown. He puts David on notice for tonight and confirms that the match at the Great American Bash is indeed going to occur, uh, lest someone panic and not hit the purchase button on their remote control. And I would be remiss if I didn't take a moment to mourn for the match that could have been David Flair versus Reed Fleer. But, since Reed Fleer was portraying the Reed Flair character, I guess it would have been David Flair versus Reed Flair. But, we'll never know. Nash takes a stick back and lets Nature Boy know he's got a present for him. He doesn't feel right having a belt that Flair hasn't lost. And this belt is his. So, he takes off his belt and he hands it to the nature boy, 
thus setting a record at 16 times the man. And I know that like, if I was on a championship team, <laughs> can you imagine, or something of that nature, and we had like four rings, and we needed that fifth one to become the all-time like most championships team in that sport, that I absolutely want to win that fifth ring via forfeit. So, Nature Boy and I have a thing in common. We both want to win as easily as possible with the least amount of effort. We're kind of anti-Deadpool, if you will. He's all maximum effort, and I'm all, eh, eh. What a strong moment, says Tony Schiavone. Jeff Jarrett is here. Am I on the wrong set? Is this the view? Because all I see are a bunch of self-serving women. And I'm going to choose not to make any comments about the view, because I appreciate my listenership. Hey, somebody in the crowd has Pepe. You know, Chavo Guerrero's old horse. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that a lot of times I give some of the shitty stuff on these shows a pass. But Pepe is a great example of the kind of crazy stuff that I really enjoy. Just random type shit that at least is part of a character. Not so much championships, you know, being vacated, absconded, and held in a bands three different times in a match. But since that's what I get... I have to find joy in what's in front of me. Um, Flair indicates that he's now the champion again and says, it's just three against the world. Which reminds me of, it's just me against the world. Which is an album I haven't listened to in a very long time, and I wonder if it still holds up. Uh, Jarrett lets us know that tonight it's Nash taking on Rick Steiner and Tankberg in a handicap match. And Big Papa Rump, as he puts it, is banned from ringside. Steiner says the talk is cheap because when his freaks step out of line, he slaps them. No, the feed didn't cut. I'm just letting it sink in. Got it? Good. And it's going to be Flair versus Jeff Jarrett for the belt. Flair says... Nash and Big Papa Pump gave him the night off. So it's not happening. And then things turn dim, not because of the illogical words of Ric Flair, but the lights are turned down. When all of a sudden, a bright single light shines in the sky. And the Batman is here. And he brought with him a sleeveless New Blood t-shirt and some very light, very light dad at a barbecue denim. Russo says he's always one step ahead, and out comes R&B security with David Flair, who has Beth and Reed Fleer, well, Beth Fleer and Reed Flair held hostage. Now, serious moment of credit here given to the performers, because as soon as Beth and Reed come into view, the Ric Flair character immediately drops like the belt and the microphone and just sprints up the ramp and starts a fight. So, and and I believe that because, all, you know, real logic in here, okay, these are wrestling guys, they're wrestling characters, they cut promos on one another, it's just part of what they do, they enjoy talking shit, otherwise they wouldn't be in this business, 
But something super personal and quote-unquote real happens, Flair immediately goes on the offensive. It's, it's, look, it's a, it's a, it's a turd on a pedestal to use a catchphrase that I enjoy, but it makes sense. And I think that it's important to point out that stuff too. Uh, the new blood, you know, flee the scene, the three-man power trip, you know, is in a brawl with R&B security. And like I said, it makes sense. And speaking of making sense, we pivot to the parking lot where Vampiro is driving a semi-truck that in 2022 is worth approximately $2.6 billion because it is indeed a gas tanker. He slashes his throat and spikes the camera as we head to commercial. We return from commercial and backstage, the Russo group is yelling at Beth Fleer. And Ric Flair is going door to door searching for the kidnapped Fleer family. He's so out of sorts that he opens a door, looks in a room, walks away from it, and then goes back to that room just to double check. It's an interesting character choice, but whatever. We cut to the announcers for a brief talking head segment where they indicate that because he had no choice, Flair accepted the challenge during the commercial break. I don't know how he accepted the challenge or got word to Tony Schiavone, but I'm going to let it slide. And oh my god, Tony! I hear some music! And it's filthy, a dirty, a nasty, that's the way we like it! The filthy lights in the arena dim. The filthy curtain is up. We get some filthy psychedelic lighting. I see some filthy silhouettes. These filthy silhouettes are posing in a filthy way. Some filthy pyrotechnics explode, and the filthy curtain falls all the way to the ground this time to reveal a very filthy Scotty Pippen. Well, actually, it's the filthy animals, and the hip-hop inferno is wearing a Scotty Pippen Portland Trail Blazers jersey. And hey, if you ever wanted to know how much Johnny C follows professional sports, I didn't even know that Scotty Pippen played for the Portland Trail Blazers at one time. Um, during this introduction, the announcers casually mention that an asylum match will be happening tonight between Big Papa Pump and the franchise, and they also announce Sting taking on the Kidster. The Filthy Animals attempt to cut a promo, but the Hip Hop Inferno just can't get the catchphrases right. He's supposed to say, it's all good, but he says, it's all swell, and challenges the MIA to a lumberjack match so they can get a filthy tushy kicking. And hey, why don't we play one of my favorite games, Fun with Closed Captions, as Conan steals the mic and calls the filthy animals eunuchs and then finishes up by saying, Speaking in foreign language, speaking in foreign language, waving my hands a lot, yelling things, rhyming things, Cynthia, Cynthia, Jesus died for our sin, Thea. I need absolute silence to get into character. All right, let's continue. I need absolute silence to get into character. Okay, but can I just continue? I need absolute silence while I get into character. Those are all 22 Jump Street gags. I just watched it last week, so you have to suffer. Um, what happens next? Oh, yeah. Uh, the MIA's music hits... And they come out, but they stand really close together in the entranceway, like under Nitro Vision. Like, really strangely close together. I'm like, what the fuck are these guys doing, playing Red Rover? Finally, some weak-ass pyro goes off, 
And when the pyro is completed, Hudson says, Wow! The heavy artillery discharges on nitro! And I agree with you, Scott Hudson. The MIA absolutely remind me of discharge. And I strongly believe that Captain Rection is absolutely the type of guy that's praying that when he comes to visit his buddies, uh, he finds a hamper full of dirty buddy's wife's clothes. The character of General Rection, that is. Certainly not the actor portraying him. I'd like to make that very clear. Lieutenant Loco sprints past the pack and does his diving shoulder tackle over the rope thingy, and a bell rings! So, match number one. Lieutenant Loco defeats the Hip Hop Inferno via the F2. Major Guns gets her own entrance, so people pay attention to the match. Lieutenant Loco in a pretty cool spot, dives from the top rope to the outside onto a pile of all of the dirty animals. The Hip Hop Inferno counters this with a stun gun as Lieutenant Loco re-enters the battle. We get a graphic on the screen that says 13 days until the Great American Bash, which makes me realize, holy fuck, that's three more episodes of WCW Must Die before the pay-per-view. And on a serious note, I think that this... When all said and done, this time period between Slamboree 2000 and the Great American Bash 2000 is absolutely case in point for WCW's falling apart. It's a very long stretch. The Slamboree pay-per-view was very early in May, and the June pay-per-view is mid-June. And we all know that Russo goes through like a month of storylines in a week. So we've got like six months of storylines if you follow that logic. So honestly, like, you know, maybe in the Bash episode I will chart out all the things that happened in between the pay-per-views in a serious manner, and we can really pick that bad boy apart. Um, anywho, back to the match. Somebody hits a Luthez press, I don't remember who, but Tony says (laughs) when the move is hit that it's a Thez press type maneuver, and and it's just a Luthez press, Tony, you know? If, if 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 Stone Cold hits a stunner, JR's not like, STUNNER TIME MANEUVER! STUNNER TIME MANEUVER! It's just a fucking stunner. Um, a, a brawl breaks out between all members of the, of, the, of the warring factions. Rey Mysterio enters the fray and attacks Lieutenant Loco. He gets him in position for a backwards Bronco Buster. And he's, be, he's motioning to his dick, but he's so loud about it that they can see him all the way in Mexico doing this hand gesture. Major Guns, however, gets the attention of young Mysterio, and the motion of dick movement, or blowjob ha- blow hands, as you might call it, gets even louder, so it's now visible from space. Major Gum... Major Gums. Which I guess also fits. <laughs> Sometimes the accidents are more fun than the shit I want to say. Rey Mysterio literally climbs a turnbuckle and starts to unbuckle his belt. Like, I get that... I mean, like, what else... Like, if standards of practices is paid attention here, how do you possibly get away from the fact that Mysterio's trying to get a, bl- a, a blowjob in the middle of the ring? Like, what could you say he's possibly doing? Like, I could say in certain circumstances, doing some lawyer speak and being like, Oh, no, he's not doing that. He's just trying to make sure his pants don't fall down when he hits the Bronco Buster. But no... There's no lawyer speak around this one, all right? He is ready to receive. To the surprise of no one, she rips her shirt, getting a cheap pop, and kicks Mysterio in the dick. Somehow, 
Lieutenant Loco hits a tornado DDT, or an F2, on the Hip Hop Inferno, and gets a 1-2-3. The MIA celebrates, when holy shit, it's Nitro Girl Tigress. She's here to defend her boyfriend, Rey Mysterio, and also, once again, wreak havoc on my computer's autocorrect. Because why can't she just spell her name in a different way? Well, I guess Tigress wouldn't really work under any circumstances, but that why really, really wreaks havoc. Here's the real thing about Tigress coming down, though. So I can absolutely see the logic here. I mean, someone hurts a person that you love, and you come out to defend that person or extract some revenge on the person who wronged them. It makes total sense. However, Scott Hudson sets my theory back decades by indicating she's doing this specifically because Major Guns went after Rey Mysterio's dick. And now I'm wondering if Rey Mysterio ever considered, like, a line of condoms that he could market with his brand? Like... They would, you know, you wrap them down and, and there'd be like a Rey Mysterio mask on the end. And you could just pop into the bedroom and be like, Who's that jumping out the sky? Are you Mysterio? Here we go. You know, and impress your lady friends or your, your guy friends. It's all good to me, man. I just want to sell condoms. I would have bought some. Anyway, the match was whatever. I give it to Scotty Pippins. At this moment, Tony Schiavone lets us know we're going to take it to the back for Paula Paul Shock, or Paola Paul Shock, excuse me. <laughs> Who's in the back with Vampiro? Oh my god. Vampiro, what's with the gasoline truck outside? Is this another one of your sicko plans? And then Vampiro, go, he, he does a little inhale hand motion. He goes, can you smell that? She immediately goes, no. He goes, you know what that is? Well, duh, it's gasoline. But don't worry, only the thinners will burn in hell. Which lets me know that Vampiro is probably very active on Facebook these days. He asks her who she is, and before she can answer, Vampiro promises tonight there will be a fire, and it will all be Sting's fault. Vampiro pulls away from the microphone, because the interview is over. But all of a sudden, I hear grumbling f- sounds and flesh pounding it sounds like this and chronic is beating up horse hogan right near the interview stage apparently they're taking the cunning ruse that he launched upon them on thunder very personal and they're trying to get revenge of their own you'll remember that horse hogan pulled off a fantastic uh power play on chronic on thunder by making them think that he was not going to tag with billy kidman and I hypothesized that Horace might be a secret genius. Well, if he let himself get caught in a chronic trap, I take back my earlier statements. Now, at this moment, to protect Horace Hogan, two individuals arrive. I know them as the event Chuck Palumbo and the perfect one, Sean Stasiak. They have Lex Flexors and they beat up the chronic. And I believe it's Tony casually mentions that the perfect one is now... Perfection, which, yes, sounds better, but I'm still going to make fun of it. Snoochie Boochies! We cut to Miss Hancock. She's in the back, but she's walking to the ring. We return from a commercial to a promo for the upcoming Great American Bash pay-per-view event. Dance with the future, is what Billy Kidman says, uh, implying that, you know, he's going to be the one to take down 
Hulk Hogan. I normally wouldn't mention anything like this because it's pretty typical stuff. But the promo starts to close out, and the announcer guy's like, you cannot imagine. And why? Go back and watch every promo for a WCW pay-per-view in the year 2000. The tagline that the announcer says is always the same. All right, so let's say the pay-per-view setup is Sid versus Mike Awesome in an ambulance match. And it's like, Sid Vicious will take his revenge upon Mike Awesome in an ambulance match. You cannot imagine what will occur at WCW Sin. Okay, so that's the promo. But they all start or finish with the announcer going, You cannot imagine what will happen at... And it's like, well, I'm starting to imagine pretty quickly here what's going on but that's not even the point i wanted to make the point is is that when he says only on pay-per-view at the great american bash the last line in the promo as you see the all the information for the pay-per-view is hulk hogan saying you and me got a date brother and as he says brother there's a tiny echo like and right as he says miss hancock's music kicks it and it goes rah 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 so it sounds like you and me got a date, brother. Rah, 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 rah. Like, cut to them on the date, like, thrust fucking? I don't know. It made me laugh. Anyway, she has a microphone. Uh, people think I'm a stick in the mud. That's a visual. Hit my music. And then once again, we get rah, 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 rah. And she starts to strip. But then Tammy Sitch's music plays. But it's really just hard knocked Chris Candido. We immediately cut to the back. Where David Flair tells Russo, Oh man, I gotta go. So he either just prematurely ejaculated, or he needs to get out to the ring. But I'm more interested in what's happening behind David Flair in this minuscule five-second cutaway. Because if you look behind Vince Russo, holy fuck, are they making a porno. It's, and I know, I know you're aghast at what I'm about to hypothesize. I can hear it now. But on a little beanbag couch behind them is Reed Flair, and he's the his portion of the beanbag is a little deflated, and above him is Beth Fleer. And she's sort of sitting provocatively. And if you pause the peacock stream at exactly 27 minutes and 20 seconds, you will see the image that put this in my head. And, and they're the ones that put it there. I didn't put it here. Okay? Beth Fleer does not have to be sitting like that for this cutscene. She was staged there purposefully. Not to mention there is a sign behind them that says Spuds and Suds. Which sounds like it could be the production company of this Fleer porno. Anywho, Reed says damn. And Russo goes, you don't curse at my house, son! Back to the ring, though. Chris Candido is angry that some women in the back care about wrestling. One of them's Tammy. And they tried to make a business deal with Miss Hancock. And, Ray, you know, Candido's like, oh, roar, roar. And I can't tell if he's actually yelling at her or holding back tears because he's doing his voice. Vince Russo, you told me I was going to feud with the Macho Man. And now I'm literally out here grabbing a woman by her hair on national cable television. I look like a piece of shit. David Flair to the rescue. Uh, he immediately starts punching Candido. And Candido punches him back. And it goes like this. Punch, 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 punch. When all of a sudden, Ric Flair's in the ring. He tackles David. David grabs Stacy Keebler. They get the fuck out of there. And this actually makes a lot of sense. If Ric Flair's legitimately been on the hunt for David the entire night, and he catches wind that David's there, he's going to break stride and immediately go to fight David. So I like it. We head to a commercial. 
We come back from a commercial, and Kimberly Page is getting out of a limo, and the paparazzi are asking her questions. She prefers to be now known as Kimberly, though, not Mrs. Page. They say, who does your hair? She says, I have a hairdresser. I don't necessarily think that's what they... I mean, they assumed by asking the question that you had a hairdresser, they'd like some names so they could publish the, uh, that person's name and perhaps get them some more work. Who made your outfit? I have a designer. Well, well, again, the same thing. And then a photographer asks if she can turn around so she can get a picture from the other side. And Kimberly says, oh, no, you shoot me from here. This is my good side. Now, I don't understand the inclusion of this last statement because she's supposed to be like a bitchy character that doesn't, you know, that isn't nice to people. But having a good side and a bad side is a legitimate human concern. Like, I know my bad side. I know my good side. And I don't take pictures from my bad side. Now, you can call me uh, narcissistic. I'm not. I'm just trying to do the best with what I got. And I think you should use everything at your disposal for those purposes. Tony Schiavone tells us that on Friday, Kimberly had a camera crew at the Page house. We head to Shayla Page last Friday, and Kimberly is having a poorly acted one-sided phone call with Eric Bischoff. She's pissed about getting spanked on Thunder, so she's cleaning out the man cave. Some of DDP's items are getting tossed forever, like his giant credit card, his Stanley Cup trophy. Well, it kind of looks like the Stanley Cup. At one point, she says, she being Kimberly Page, pronouns pal, what am I wearing? As if Bischoff said, hey. No, that's Kevin Nash. Bischoff would be like, what are you wearing? And when Kimberly says, what am I wearing? Someone in the crowd yells, take your shirt off. (laughs) And somehow it comes through clear as fuck on the audio. It really made me laugh. Cut to the arena. And hey, Donny Osmond is here. He gets light applause. Carl Malone is here. He gets a larger applause. Scott Hudson gets made fun of by Mark Madden for asking if the two celebrities came together. And Tony Schiavone tries to make some sort of claim that they're both massive celebrities in the Salt Lake area and he's sure that they know each other. But uh, I don't think you could deny that uh, Carl Malone's probably got him beat. Maybe. I don't know. I don't dig that shitty music or whatever they do. But uh, the point of this is that Diamond Dallas Page and Bret Hart will be on the Donnie and Marie show on August 14th. Emergency. 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 So, rookie sensation G.I. Bro is here. When he's coming down to the aisle, Mark Madden says, Where is he? I I can't barely see him. (laughs) I don't know. He has the microphone, and there's this really weird meta moment where he, like, justifies being G.I. Bro now because that's the name he had when he started in this business. And I'm like, well, duh. You just fucking started last week. I've seen your only match, you fucking nerd. I know. Anyway, he tells Perfection that it's going to be a boot camp match at the Great American Bash. He calls out Awesome Mike Awesome for taking out Canyon and for almost injuring Booker on April 27th. He challenges him to an ambulance match. Mark Madden says that he's going to disappoint his little privates. Talking about the MIA. Now, as Madden's making dick jokes, Scott Hudson and Tony Schiavone are still trying to figure out why an engaged man would rescue another woman. And I was thinking to myself, well, Jesus, I would think that most women would be proud of their fiancé if they rescued another woman from being violently assaulted. I mean, it has nothing to do with fucking being attracted to them or being engaged to someone or sexual preference even. You just fucking help somebody when they're in danger. Jesus Christ. I mean, look, 
I'm not trying to speak ill of Stacy Keebler, but she's not a professional wrestler, and Candido might be a little bitch, but he could probably take her out pretty easily. I mean, Tony Schiavone and Scott Hudson, they're just not heroes, you know? But good lord, can you imagine if these guys were Avengers? Ugh, what would that look like? Well, I imagine that Tony Schiavone's superhero name would be Fans. Because it's the word he says the most. And I imagine that Scott Hudson's superhero name would be Good Night! And if they were Avengers, and we were to take a look into the Avengers compound on a regular, I don't know, Tuesday afternoon, and they were about to start a meeting, it might look something like this. Avengers, assemble. Let's take roll call. Captain America, well, obviously I'm here. Let's take the rest of the roll. Thor, yeah. Vision, I'm here, Captain. Doctor Strange, here. Scarlet Witch, I'm here. Fans, right here, Captain. And it's an absolute honor to be a part of the greatest team in the history of our sport. Right. Um, good night. Is there a good night here? Good night. I'm right here, for Pete's sake! I don't understand this, Captain. Who are these people? I told my brother Pietro that we had no room on this team, but yet these people get the spot. Wanda, please, try not to say these people. Enough! I have broken bread with this Shivani of House Tony, and he is worthy. Uh, put this other guy, I'm not so sure. Good night! And that's what it would sound like if Tony Shivani and Scott Hudson were members of the Avengers. Mike Awesome is back, and he's casually backing an ambulance. Or, casually. Actually, what I meant to say was cautiously, which is like the exact opposite of casually. But he's tried to back the ambulance up so he doesn't kill anyone in the audience, and he also brought his halo. G.I. Bro runs down the ramp to encounter him. Fight! A bell rings. So, match number two. G.I. Bro defeats C.K. Awesome. Via Skull Fracture. As I'd mentioned, they're on the ramp, and they continue to do some ramp stuff. Eventually, G.I. Bro gets in the ring, and Mike Awesome hits a slingshot shoulder tackle to take control. I do enjoy when Awesome does that. He moves so well for a larger man. It's as if he has the grace of a smaller athlete, but yet the power of a larger athlete. I wish there were an easier way to say that. Anywho, Mike Awesome hits a powerbomb as a transition spot. I mean, I guess it's an ambulance match, so that makes sense. You have to transition because you can't go for a pinfall. After, but you know what? God damn it. I talked myself out of making fun of it. Moving on. Awesome climbs the top rope. He goes for like a drop kick, half splash thing because he knows that he has to eat a drop kick from Mr. Bro in the air. So we've got some air-to-air -air kick action. I thought that was pretty cool. G.I. Bro whips Awesome into the ropes, ducks under, and then makes a rookie mistake as he goes to jump over Awesome, but Awesome is too tall, and the Bro has a very uh, dangerous landing on his knee. It's an embarrassing transition that leads to Mike Awesome being back in control, but G.I. Bro does fight back, and it's somewhat of a stalemate. Tony Schiavone lets us know that at the top of the hour, the handicap match will be happening. Now, 
Normally, I would mention this to make fun of the top of the hour, but I wanted to put that nugget out there. In the front row, there is a per well, not in the front row per se, but maybe three or four rows back, there is an individual with a giant sign with arrows pointing down that says, Chad! Chad, you should have told me you were at this show. We could have compared notes. Axe kick by the brosif? <laughs> I, I should have just called it brosif. I'm going to continue doing that. Um, back out to the ramp for some ramp stuff. I do notice it's kind of interesting. The ramp seems to have a more glossy, shinier appearance this go around. I don't know if it's a different ramp or if I'm just slowly going crazy. No time to ponder this, though, because Mike Awesome hits GI Bro with the halo. He's made a dangerous covenant with this medical device that wants to be used only for good, but is used for harm. All that to simply say Covenant and Halo close together. Out comes Diamond Dalius Page. I don't know why I called him Dalius, but it's DDP, and he takes the chair to CK. Uh, they, they, being Brosif and Pagester, set up Mike Awesome for, I guess, a double Uranagi, um, maybe a double bro end. I don't know what you want to call it, a double bottom, off of the stage through a table. Now, I say that calmly, but then I realize, as he's set up, that the table is not set up correctly. So, they get to the edge of the stage to do this double bookend, alright? And the table is not horizontally set. It's not left to right. It's vertical, top to bottom. But they decide, fuck it, and go for it anyway, This is not the first time that Mike Awesome and Diamond Dallas Page have been in table and stage-related shenanigans. You'll recall when Kevin Nash almost killed Mike Awesome, DDP had to double super team bomb powerbomb Mike Awesome with Kevin Nash. Why did DDP and Mike Awesome continually agree to some stage stuff? Alright? It's not good for them. But they do put Awesome through the table... Uh, The table breaks in the middle, as they usually do. That is also where Mike Awesome's skull is located. And Skull kisses Concrete with Concrete victorious. Jesus. Scott Hudson, upon viewing the same catastrophe that I have, says, Mike Awesome was 31 years old. And while, yes, I do think that's pretty funny, it's also, yikes. They throw, they being Brosif and Pagester, into the, uh, throw Mike Awesome into the ambulance. The bell signals. Um, it was fun. I'll give it two rookie mistakes. The duck and the table positioning. But I should mention the GI Bro is now 2-0. and And I believe the only undefeated wrestler in the wars of sports entertainment between the New Blood and the Millionaire's Club. Miss Elizabeth, The Event, and Perfection are watching this from a locker room on a tiny TV. Uh, Perfection indicates and swears that he will destroy G.I. Bro at the Great Bash of Americanism. Palumbo indicates that G.I. Bro is a goof. And while I agree, we've got pot, kettle, black scenario here. There's a knock on the door and Miss Elizabeth looks concerned. Could she possibly have to deal with another man in this scenario? 
Is it two enough? Do we really need three? And is this consensual? Or am I imagining it in my brain? But as Chuck Palumbo goes to answer the door, he sees a note on the floor. Now I really want to know how this note got here, because it is pretty fucking far away from the door. And have you ever tried to slide a note under the door? You're lucky if the whole thing gets there, because a little bit of the paper is probably still poking out on your end, and good luck getting your finger under the door to push it all the way through. But this letter, or note, is so far away from the door itself, I mean, you would have had to fucking slingshot it in there. Or do something. I don't know. There's not enough time in the day for me to think of something funnier. But Chuck reads the note. Difficultly, I might add. Or with difficult, with great difficulty. It says, 419, got a minute? I, I can't. I really can't with this shit. 419, got a minute. And he looks perplexed. He should look angry. As in, who would commit this to writing? But he's perplexed. Brian Crush peeks his head through the door. Brian Bob. Brian Bob. It's not It's not funny. Brian Baum is with him. Uh, Liz Bales, thanks to this chronic attack. And uh, a brawl erupts in the locker room. The new blood walks towards the camera, towards the ring, I presume. And Eric Bischoff tells Horace Hogan that he needs to beat up Donny Osmond tonight. The Bolea Mobile pulls up backstage. And Hulk Hogan, Terry Bolea, is here. He says, Bischoff's got to be a bigger man dripped in red and yellow off my back, Jack. Now, when he says red and yellow, I think to myself, and oh my God, guys, I remember this stage of the Hulk Hogan-Terry Bollea saga. We are about to enter the identity crisis phase. And no, I'm not talking about using magic to mind wipe Hulk Hogan-Terry Bollea. It's not that type of identity crisis. Which, I don't know, though. Having the ability to mind wipe Terry Bollea may have been beneficial in the long run. Because every time they make him eat the one, two, three, brother, they just wipe his mind and make him forget all about it. But I don't have access to a pen or paper, so my comic book idea blows away in the wind. Hogan's not done, though. He says, I got backup, Jack. We hear some loud car engine sounds. The camera whip pans to the back, or to behind Terry, and we see Gold Bergamus Prime in all his glory. Now, if you look a little bit closer to this scene, there is indeed more than meets the eye. There is a black car in between the Bollea Mobile and Goldbergamus Prime. A human being gets out of this car, and it is indeed the human form of Goldberg. What the fuck? Actually, I want to get serious for a second. Goldberg is here. And, you know, I, I like to have fun. But I I think every once in a while I'm capable of some decent analysis. All right? So I'm, I'm turning off the jokes for a second. It's 38 minutes into Nitro. Okay? Which in real time would probably make this about um, 8.45 in the real world. All right? During the last match... They did say at the top of the hour, so 15 minutes from now, okay? And don't forget, we're about to get into some commercials. It's probably going to be like 8.50 when we come back. But they said at the top of the hour is Kevin Nash versus Tankberg and Rick Steiner in that handicap match. So 
if you look at this from an episodic perspective, this makes complete logical sense. Because Tank Abbott and Bill Goldberg is the only feud that has been consistently... Well, okay, not the only. Let me rephrase that. Kidman and Hogan is obviously still going on, okay? But the Flair stuff has evolved to being Russo, and I guess Sting of Vampiro has to... Well, this might not... Let me... Okay, let me illustrate the point a different way. Goldberg and Tank has been going on since the reboot, but there have been no opportunities for actual physical interaction. It's been a one-sided affair, and it's been all promo-based, okay? To the point where the Tank Abbott character has changed to, like, a Goldberg parody, okay? And I think this is a perfect one of those old-school type of call your friends and tell them, holy shit, you have got to switch to Nitro, because Goldberg is back. He's been gone for some time. And if you want to look a little further, this is like genius ahead of its time foresight on the part of composing the show. Now, I know that this sort of call your buddies shit did happen during the Monday Night Wars. But if this happened now in like a Twitter era, not only you know, is it still a call your friends scenario, but it's a tweet your friends or message your friends or text your friends or whatever. But... You have an entire PR marketing team at your fingertips that's completely cost-free. When you tweet out, holy shit, Goldberg is back, hashtag Nitro, or hashtag Goldberg, whatever. And there are tons of social media platforms. Twitter's just the one that popped into my head because, you know, the hashtags still exist in the corner on the WWE broadcast, which I think is a great thing, to be honest with you. You know, sports got the sports box, the sap box, the Fox, Fox tracker, whatever. You know, WWE could actually... Side project, podcast about WWE doing a tracker for matches. But aside from that, um, it's great. It makes complete fucking sense. And that top of the hour means 9 o'clock, which is when Raw starts. So you're promising Goldberg in the segment when Raw starts. However, I see the flip side of this argument. It's great episodic booking, but is episodic booking, which is what Russo tends to do, meaning when one episode's done... He doesn't know how it relates to the next one. He just gets there and he does it. So, is it short-sighted to do this with no announcement? You know, could they have started, you know, even hyping it up last week on Nitro that there are rumors that Bill Goldberg were up here? Don't confirm it. Maybe there are rumors. And then on Thunder, there are rumors. I mean, that's as real as you can make it, knowing that you know he's going to be there, but not wanting to flat-out tell your audience. And then you hit your 845 call-your-friends moments. It's confirmed Goldberg is here. So, I don't know. There is no joke to this at the moment. What's the correct answer here? It's hard to tell. I guess hindsight tells us that this was the wrong answer, but is that fair? If all things are being equal, if all, if the, you know, this might sound like a joke, but the one of the gags is level playing field with the New Blood and the Mainers Club. Level playing field, I think this puts a tick in the nitro bucket. If all things being equal, ratings are, you know, neck and neck. But we know it's not there. But I don't know. I don't know what the answer is in this particular scenario. Now, there are worse Goldberg choices coming up in the future, which I can't wait to talk about from a serious perspective, but also because it'll it'll make for fun jokes. But I don't know that this is one of them. It's too close to call. And I mean that wholeheartedly. All right. Let's get back to the regularly scheduled program. And since we're getting back, we'll come back from commercial. Ric Flair continues to hunt. For his lost family. He looks in a door. Nothing. 
He then goes to like a giant dumpster contraption and investigates this thing from multiple angles, meaning he thinks there's a decent possibility that Vince Russo put his fucking family in a giant dumpster. I don't know. It, it works. Uh, Miss Hancock and David Fleer walk. And it is David Fleer because David Fleer is Miss Hancock's boyfriend. Well, actually it would be Stacy Keebler and David Fleer are walking backstage. Or is it Miss Hancock and David Flair walking backstage? The world may never know. And I have tried to keep the serious trend going, folks. But God damn it, we get back to the ring. And it's time for a little commercial. We get to an issue of Sports Illustrated for Kids. Right in the middle of the screen. And it's Bill Goldberg with Scott Steiner in a comedic headlock. And the headline says... Is wrestling a sport? Now, we've noted on this program that Big Papa Pump Scott Steiner loves to smack around his freaks when they get out of line. Now, that's a vague statement that does imply violence, but we know in this world, freaks are his lady friends. So to put it bluntly, Scott Steiner beats women. And here he is in a goofy headlock with a big fucking shit-eating grin on his face on a magazine for children. Brian Synergy. The Is Wrestling a Sport headline is fantastical. (laughs) Tony Schiavone says, Is pro wrestling, or sports entertainment, if you will, a sport? (laughs) You're darn right it is. And then he chuckles, as only Tony Schiavone can, to where we don't know if he's chuckling because he's serious, and it's like, that's a silly question to ask. Or if he's chuckling because, holy fuck, Lois, this is my life. Again, the world may never know. I do think it's safe to say, though, that Tony's excitement is warranted. And he does let the crowd know, at least the the crowd that's watching, that he is excited for what he's witnessing. Because Goldberg is here in the flesh. And he didn't come to mingle with the Mormons, Mark Madden adds in. Out comes Eric Bischoff, Kimber Mee, Ernest the Cat Miller, Horse Hogan, and the Kidster. Eric loves us because he tells us every fucking time he has a microphone. No, you. You're too much. You. Yeah. No, I like you. Wait, who? Us? You? Me? You? He's like the Butabi brothers from The Night at the Roxbury. The cat is doing his full repetition gimmick. Eventually... Eric begs him to stop. And I wonder if the gimmick is a dig at Mike Tanay, but uh, it's probably not. I probably... See, uh, Tanay's on my brain all the time, even when it's not thunder. Like, I'll have nightmares about Tanay, and I'll shoot up out of bed in a cold sweat, and my wife will be like, Tanay, and I'll be like, yeah. And then I just kind of lay down and rest my head on her bosoms and fall back asleep. Anywho, you guys don't want to know about... You guys don't want to hear about my weekends. Um, So, during this interview segment... Eric Bischoff is really sticking it to Hollywood Hogan, dude. And he says, You ain't got the guts to wear your red and yellow in this ring, because you know I tear it off myself. And when did this become a thing? Like, I know that I joked earlier we're getting into the Terry Bollea identity crisis era, and we are, but it's not as if there's been weeks of television where Hogan's like contemplating, dude, do I put on the red and yellow? And he like goes to his suitcase and the red and yellow is gone because like Bischoff has it and he's like, I've got your undies. You know, he's not like, like this hasn't been a thing. So I just don't really understand where it's all coming from. Um, you know, when did his clothes really start to maketh the man? 
Manners maketh the man. Eggsy. Do you guys ever call someone Eggsy when you want to talk down to them? Like if you were in a store and someone's like, hey, how much does this cost? And there's a sign right behind both of you that's massive that says $1.99. And you kind of look at it and you're like, I'm not quite sure, Eggsy. I've done that before. Anyway, you guys aren't as cool as me if you haven't. Um, Eric indicates that Horse Hogan, dude, is going to be the referee for the Great American Bash. And the new blood is going to be on Horace's hands. Horace takes a moment to climb the top turnbuckle and pose, and I notice that, good lord, the man might just be Perry Saturn version 2. American Maid ratches up over the speakers, and here comes Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea, brother, and he says, The red and yellow will never die, dude. All right. Well, no one said it was going to. I just, again, I don't... And after the pay-per-view in July, brother, I'm going to be the champ. So Hulk Hogan's already informed his lawyers to let WCW know that he shall be the champion at the Bash at the Beach. Eventually, Hulk Hogan Terry Bollea says, Fuck it, I've had enough of this, and he rushes towards the ring. We head to the outside, strangely, and Goldberg is walking towards the ring. And Tony Schiavone yells as we head to commercial, He's coming inside! And again, Tony, we didn't need to hear about my weekend. Why do we have to hear about yours? It's okay, though. I'm an equal opportunity weekend talk about her. And so, Tony, I'm going to allow it. We do head to that commercial, as promised. When we come back, we saw that during the commercial break, Hulk Hogan and Terry Bollea did make it into the ring and ruled ass over the new blood like he's Jimmy King. Out comes the Nash of the Wolf Pack. He's wearing a very large cross that was either a gift from Terry Bollea or he's just trying to impress the Mormon audience. I'm not quite sure if they even worship the same cross, and I'm not going to do any research. And yes, I said worship the same cross. I know it's not. You know, I'm done. Uh, As Nash is walking to the ring, he's attacked by Tank and Rick Steiner. So I guess the match has begun, even though the bell hasn't rang yet. Steiner has a pipe wrench, as one is apropos to do in a sports entertainment confrontation. What kind of a man? It's another man with a pipe wrench. The bell rings. So, in the top of the hour, two-on-one handicap match, Rick Steiner and Take Abbott defeat Kevin Nash via Kevin Nash cheating by having an extra person on his team when he's not supposed to in a top-of-the-hour two-on-one handicap match, Tony. So, the bell has rung after this pipe wrench shot. So, Nash is laying in the corner like a slug. It is truly his only defense. Punches and kicks and punches and kicks and posing. All of a sudden, the drums hit. Tony Schiavone yells, they're on their feet! And then the camera spins around the arena, looking at the crowd on their feet. It catches Donnie Osmond. Donnie Osmond standing as well! (laughs) So thank God we know that Donnie Osmond is also turned on by the Goldberg drums. It's Goldberg in the flesh! My God! The crowd is very happy, though. I make jokes, but they are super excited to see this man. There is a spear and a jackhammer to Rick Steiner. Tank flees. The bell rings because of this illegal Goldberg interference, as I'd mentioned up top. The Goldberg character hugs the only man to ever defeat him, Kevin Nash. And I award this match no stars just because it's an angle and who really cares. Goldberg does speak, though. He has a microphone. He says... 
Tank has a filthy mouth he likes to run. Tonight, the slaughter begins. Escape is no option. Next Monday in Atlanta, your ass is next. And then uh, we cut to Tank in the aisleway, who's stroking his own goatee and giggling. Um, Goldberg, in this segment, though, does look absolutely fucking massive and huge, like there's three people trapped inside of him. And the announcers are doing a good job of putting over that his arrival will will change the tide of the war and already have changed the tide of the war between the New Blood and the Millionaire's Club. So good on them for immediately including him in the angle. We head to a commercial. We come back from commercial, and Goldberg is already walking back outside. Pamela Paulshock wants a word. He says, out of my way! He gets in his car and drives away shirtless. Folks, I'm going to put this out there into the Aquaverse. Are you driving around without a shirt on? And none of, no gags here. I don't care if you're a, a gentleman or a lady. Like, I don't care. Like, I, I'm just not down with driving without a shirt on, period. It feels strange, and it makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> I don't know. Just kind of really stood out to me like a sore thumb. We're back in the arena with the announcers, and yes, they all have their shirts on. Thank the good Lord. Thank the good Mormon Lord above, or whatever Lord the Mormons worship. Um, Hudson, in this uh, little stand-up scenario, I notice as he's staring intently into the camera, he looks like Ming the Merciless from Flash Gordon, which is a movie you haven't seen. I'm going to recommend you definitely check out. The announcers hype the WCW.com reload program, and I again yearn for those broadcasts. They put the camera on the Malone family as the wife of Carl Malone tries desperately to get her young son to look into the camera and perhaps make some faces so they will just fucking leave them alone. The rock hipster fucking twangy remix of Somebody Call My Mama hits the speakers, and so Terry Funk is here. He's got a mystery opponent tonight, and he grabs the mic, says to whomever is listening, Bring him out, Bischoff. You know what? No, I'm coming to get him right now. And Terry Funk walks back up the ramp that he just walked down. And oh, it's the Vampster, the Dark Angel, the Gas Man, the King of Self-Service. Vampiro Ian is here. The bell rings. So... For the WCW Hardcore Guzzoline Championship. That's right, folks. I've heard I hope you've seen Mad Max Fury Road, because this segment's gonna be full of references. Terry Funk and Vampiro wrestle, in quotation marks, to a no contest when Vampiro pulls the old Witness me! Immediately, Terry Funk hits a pile driver on the ramp to Vampiro, but gets only a two count. A low blow from the demented Ian turns the tide. And so the nail in the coffin is hit. And he covers for the one, two, three. And we have a new hardcore champion and that's the end of the night. Good night, everybody. We'll see you next time on WWE Must Die. Well, that's what should have happened. But Vampiro hits the nail in the coffin. Should go for the pin. But the script does not call for him to end this match as the new hardcore guzzling champion of the world. So he attacks the ref for no reason. To which Scott Hudson says, that's what you do, Rasheed Wallace. I don't quite get the reference, but I do know that episode of Chappelle Show where the guy yells, Rasheed Wallace, and then chokes uh, the manager of his office. So I think it's a reference to wrestling with authority. (laughs) Eventually, 
Vampiro turns his sights back on the aged sports entertainer and grabs him by the hair and yells off screen to a technician, hit my pyro. Vampiro's green flame pyro does indeed go off. Vampiro waits until the pyro is done spewing, then takes Terry Funk over to the vessel from which they emerged, they being the flames, pronouns, pal, and tries to burn the aged Funkster. But nothing happens. So then he throws Terry Funk into a light on the stage. That has to be burning hot, says Tony Schiavone. So many burning and fire-related puns on the announce, uh, for the announcers during this match. It's really worth a watch just for that. Eventually, the sports entertainers find their way towards the outside area of the arena. In the hallway that's adjacent, though, they run into the WCW Reload announce crew, and somebody gets thrown through the table. I don't remember who. All I wrote in my note was a WCW Reload table eats it. So, yeah. Funk eventually hits Vampiro with the trash can to take some semblance of control, and they're heading even closer to the outside now because I can see some light shining through the doors. They are now outside, oh my goodness, and the huge, ominous, ridiculously expensive truck of guzzoline is now in view. Folks, if there are any children in the room listening to this podcast, please earmuffs them now because this is a frightening scenario but as an intrepid reporter covering wcw in the year 2000 i have but no choice other than to bring you the details of this gasoline related encounter here in salt lake city utah i'm assuming the children are now gone and so we will continue (laughs) terry funk throws scolding hot water uh, because it's a coffee machine that's outside at Vampiro, <laughs> uh, I guess. I have no idea. The guzzling truck comes out of view as they head back towards the arena and brawl near the Turner Entertainment uh, satellite truck. So we've gone from a ridiculously expensive truck of gas to a ridiculously expensive truck of electronic equipment. This is just getting better with time. Vampiro... Um, well, the script calls for Vampiro to fall through a table near the uh, truck of electronics. And in order to make this happen, Vampiro takes a punch. And then, like he's Tom or Jerry or Itchy or Scratchy, you pick. He kind of waves his arms and shakes his head and basically widens his eyes as if to say, Whoa, 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 whoa! And then he falls forward through the table that was previously mentioned. I consider giving them five stars just for that. But now, they are closer to the truck of guzzoline, and Vampiro has the hose, and he hits Terry Funk with the metal end of the hose, <laughs> and Funk's like, oh! And then, Vampiro opens the sprayer, and he's spraying his seed, or his guzzoline everywhere. But thank God! Steve, the actor, rushes from behind the truck and rescues the aged Funkster. During this battle, the hose is still spraying guzzoline everywhere. And Tony Schiavone yells, They're battling as the gasoline or possibly jet fuel sprays everywhere. Now, I'm no fuel expert, okay? I just love the fact that in Tony Schiavone's mind, it can either be gasoline 
or jet fuel, which again, if jet fuel is a separate thing, and hey, I'm not trying to sound like an idiot, you guys can make fun of me all you want if I'm like, if it's like, Jesus, dude doesn't even know jet fuel is a real thing. If that, That's cool if it's a different type of gasoline, but I just love that that's where Tony Schiavone's head is going because it sounds more expensive and it sounds more deadly because it only works in jets, like on Top Gun. Tony... I bet Tony Schiavone watched himself a lot of Top Gun in between interview segments back in the old Survivor Series and SummerSlam shows. You know, in between interviewing like the Bolsheviks and the Demolition, it's like, hiya, hanging with the boys. And Tony Schiavone's got that volleyball scene on repeat. Tony, it's okay. I love you for who you are, and so do the rest of us. Just be yourself. But the hose is flailing everywhere in the background, and it's really a chaotic scene. And if you believe that this is gasoline, my God, the fucking, it's like you could put an adding machine next to the TV, and it should do the thing where the receipt just goes, and like flies out, because the money is just going everywhere. <laughs> ah. Eventually, Ian runs into the cab of the truck and comes out with a blowtorch. That was conveniently in the driver's seat. He yells, Witness me! But luckily, some overweight white men in tacky polo shirts, aka WCW security, intervenes and takes the blowtorch with very little pushback from the vampire warrior. He yells, Hey Steve, I'll see you later, Sting. Sting and Terry leave arm in arm. This match was fucking fantastic, but... I'm trying to, you know, keep it reined in these days, as my psychiatrist has advised me. So I'm going to give it $2.99 per gallon, which is a price I'd not only love to pay, but I think a fair representation representation of the entertainment value that was gained from this scripted television segment between two sports entertainment warriors. Back in the unmanned bowels of the arena, Ric Flair is still desperately searching for his family. With no luck on his side. Back in Vince Russo's evil lair, Beth Fleer is still sitting sexily on the couch. What the fuck is going on? She's slowly becoming America's favorite stepmom, if you will. Reed is yelling at Vince Russo while David Flair holds back the young uh, elementary school champion. Stacey Keebler is present as well. Eventually, David grabs Reed Flair by the face, and even though the youngster is a two-time New Japan Pro Wrestling amateur shoot-fighting YouTube champion, he takes a Looney Tunes back bump onto the couch. Yes, I'm being a bit overdramatic with it because, uh, you know, it's kind of like ridiculous that David Flair even has to defend himself against Reed. I mean, I'm all for, like, you know, it's like, well, the bad guys are just all powerful. If there's no one to stop, now, I'm not even going to get into a philosophical discussion about heroes and villains and fiction when it comes to a fucking episode of WCW Monday Nitro from the year 2000. The franchise now enters this backstage area, notices Beth Fleer, and he's like, you know, Beth Fleer, things sure have been weird since you moved in as my new stepmom. I mean, wait a minute, Vince Russo. I need to talk to you because I've got a match. <laughs> With Scott Steiner in the asylum. That sounds like a punishment to the franchise. But Russo lets him know it's actually a reward because it is for the United States strap. The franchise proves he's a fucking moron and goes with that, uh, you know, 
he, he believes Russo. He goes along with the uh, nonsense that's being fed his way. Fucking professional gaslighter Vince Russo. But I guess if it's against the franchise, I will allow it. So eventually, we head back to the arena after a quick commercial break. We do get one of those Great American Bash promos. This one focuses on the Asylum match. And I'm kind of pissed because after I spent so much time indicating how the announcer always says, you cannot imagine what will occur. They do not ask me to imagine potentially what I cannot when the Great American Bash occurs, if that makes sense. Back to May 26th at the household of Diamond Dallas Page and Kimbermy, DDP has arrived in his Soprano shirt again to find all of his personal shit in boxes on his front yard. Some of the boxes actually say, hold for D. Pinzer, and I get very confused, as if David Pinzer is Kimberly's new sugar daddy. But alas, there's no time to ponder this, because DDP delivers the dynamite line reading, what is this, a rib? This, oh wait, I started by Tony Schiavone voice, but then I didn't see at the end that it's actually a Scott, Quot- Scott Hudson quote, this is every man's nightmare. So coming home to find your shit in boxes is just every man's nightmare, right? Right, Scott? That's what uh, the folks in the Ukraine go to bed every night dreaming about, and they fucking wake up in a cold... Ah, oh, not even. It's it's fine. Well, it's not fine. Uh, but I'm not going to press that uh, gag any further. This ain't no rib. DDP lets the unseen audience know as he continues to speak to himself. Apparently, the locks were changed to his home, and Kimberly is here with some cops who thankfully stayed out of the frame of the television camera until they were summoned by Kimberly, but were there the whole time. One is the good cop, and then one is the bad cop. Apparently, there's a 500-feet restraining order on Mr. Dallas Page from his wife, Kimberly. And these cops are actually selling this uh, new lawful arrangement between the pages, in a pretty cool way. These cops are pretty fucking good. They should put them on payroll because it's the most realistic promo I've heard all night. As the bad cop is closing the doors to the Page estate, he says, By the way, my kids love you. <laughs> ah, I thought it was pretty good. And again, sign these fucking cops, man. Mike Awesome is in the back with Kimber Me, and he's asking her if DDP has any weaknesses. Kimberly lets Mike Awesome know that he's weak to fighting and resists ice. Ha! That's just a Pokemon joke. It's not a real thing. Or is it? But Kimberly says, Get away, you're sweating on me. And okay, that's a pretty good, pretty good gag, if you will. Now Chuck Palumbo is here, and he needs Kimberly's help because Palumbo lost Liz. He asks Kimberly to call her out. Kimberly is, uh, at first, not interested. But then Palumbo slides in, It'll get you on TV. And she's like, Okay, come on, sweaty man. And I actually, like, I mean, I don't know if focusing on Kimberly Page is, like, a good thing, but I think that was a pretty fun way to deal with the character. They do a recap from our last episode of WCW Must Die, episode 15, Love and Thunder, indicating that the spanking incident is most likely what led to the uh, restraining order that's now enforced onto the pages. Kimberly does arrive to the ring with the sweaty men. She's not half bad as a heel promo. You know, she has a really good delusional character. The audience, because it's the year 2000, starts up a very loud slut chant. 
Someone has actually ripped the corner off of a pre-existing sign and decided to write in all caps, GO HOME AND DO THE DISHES! You have to love these WCW crowds. Well, I guess it's Utah, so I guess that probably is the preferred positioning for their female patrons. I don't know if that's actually true or not. I've never been to Utah. I just know what I see on South Park. So, um, eventually, she does call out Liz. And wouldn't you fucking know, Liz actually comes down the aisle and accepts the call out. Scott Hudson calls Chuck Palumbo a mental midget. Just wanted to throw that out there. Liz does indeed arrive, as I'd mentioned. She says, everyone is sick of you, Aunt Bischoff and Russo. Preach on, says Scott Hudson. You tell him, girl, says Tony Schiavone. Kimberly orders the sweaty men to get her. And Kimberly is indeed getting pissed that Liz isn't listening to reason. DDP arrives, and Mike Awesome eats a diamond cutter. Eric Bischoff is here with a microphone and calls Diamond Dallas Page. Get ready for this. DD puke. At this moment, Diamond Dallas Page, after having to absorb this terrible insult, breaks into tears, pulls a firearm from his jeans, and takes his own life. So, the moral of this story, kids, is don't call your friends DD puke. That's just a little too harsh of an insult. Luckily, though, in reality, Diamond Dallas Page, the character, was okay. But Eric Bischoff has brought with him the long arm of the law. Because, after all, by Diamond Dallas Page coming down to the ring to combat against the sweaty men, he has broken the state of Georgia's restraining order, which I guess is also being enforced here in Utah. I don't actually know how restraining orders uh, work, regardless of what the audience may think about me. Um, Diamond Dallas Page does have a very cool Pillman 2000 event. Like, I I think it's like the Brian Pillman Memorial Cup or Memorial thing that they did. It's a really cool, like, uh, likeness of an animated Brian Pillman writing the, um, the year 2000, like 2000, as if it were the bomb from Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. I think that's the correct title. I love that fucking movie. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a really cool shirt and I kind of wish that I had it. <laughs> now, once I should circle back when Bischoff indicates that Paige has broken the law, Scott Hudson in a fucking genius interpretation of all this goes, well, the law's the law for Pete's sake. So Chuck Palumbo gets up and starts beating on DDP with the Lex Flexer. He also takes out the cops, which had arrested Diamond Dallas Page and had Page in handcuffs. So like... I mean, that's what, like, I better never see Palumbo on TV again. Like, I can understand if he, like, took out Russo and Bischoff's security, like, from a storyline perspective, but he took out the uh, actual, like, Utah State Police. So I don't know. I just don't know what the repercussions of this are going to be. Thank God, though, Lex Luger is here in a gimpy face mask and does indeed uh, rescue Diamond Dallas Page uh, from the blows of the Lex Flexer. As Lex walks around the ring to make sure that he's cleared it, David Pinzer is desperately trying to hand him the microphone as if he wants to hear from Lex Luger as if it's nobody's business. It's very awkward, as is Lex, like, waiting for some sort of cue before he leaves the ring. So Luger bails with Liz in hand, and, you know, he takes his gimpy mask with him, and 
kind of in the background we see that Mike Awesome is now stirring. And if you if you take the segments, you know, and reset it in your mind, the only two people left are Mike Awesome and Diamond Dale's Page. And Awesome is indeed, or not, excuse me, Page is indeed handcuffed, putting Awesome at the advantage, not only because he's a superior sports entertainer, but also because Diamond Dallas Page can't use his hands. Mike Awesome is salivating, waiting for the proper moment to strike. He does, but the crowd begins to cheer. A fan has entered the ring. But since the fan is none other than world-famous Utah Jazz sportsman Carl Malone, security allows this clear violation of the law to occur. Carl Malone watches as Mike Awesome takes the boots to DDP, as if he's waiting for some sort of cue or some sort of indication that it's an appropriate time to strike. He yells, It's Mormon time! Takes his shirt off, flexes, touches the awesome sports entertainer that is Mike Awesome on the shoulder. Mike Awesome turns, dumbfounded, and eats a Malone cutter. Or, as Tony Schiavone calls it, Diamond Cutter! Now this interference by Carl Malone doesn't really ever amount to anything in the long-term storytelling. But I really like it, and I think it's cool to call back to this partnership that was a huge media frenzy for the company back in their heyday. Um, I really just like the synergy and, and, you know, sort of calling back on past story elements. It's something you get sometimes in wrestling because of the nature of the product. It doesn't always allow itself to happen with face turns, heel turns, people changing uh, employers and all that shit. And sometimes the crowd just doesn't even remember. It wasn't even very important. But being in Utah, or excuse me, in Salt Lake City, of course, which is in Utah, and that being where the Jazz play, and, you know, it just it made a whole lot of sense. Malone was up for it. I say fucking go for it. Ten times, fucking 12 times out of ten. If Carl Malone's willing to do this, you let him. Absolutely. fucking lootly Big Papa Pump and his lady friends are heading towards the ring as we head to commercial. We come back from commercial, and we get a promo for the Tor- Human Torch match at the Great American Bash. You cannot imagine what they say in this promo. Pamela Paulshock grabs Ric Flair as he's running around the arena. She desperately needs to know if he'll give Jeff Jarrett a title match tonight. Flair yells yes and other stereotypical things about his family being missing and held hostage for Vince Russo and runs away. Big Papa Pump is now heading directly down to the ring. And he looks even larger than he did on Thunder, if that's even fucking possible. David Pinzer, again, offers a sports entertainer a microphone. This time, though, luckily, Scott Steiner is more than willing to accept. Now, Mr. Papa Pump, if you will, does say typical Big Papa Pump things. But because it's a special audience here in Salt Lake City, full of the Mormon Brigade, as has been previously brought to our attention, um, he shares some information with this crowd that will help them along the way if they'd like to become a freak in their later years. He gives a very simple piece of advice. You simply must separate your hips and put your ass out. Then the daddy will make you pass out. That's bad medical advice, says Scott Hudson. Uh, Big Bubble Pump does call Russo a New York sun-up bitch, which is a new one. Not heard that before. Tony wonders if this match is indeed a punishment for the franchise. Tony shouldn't be out thinking your wrestling characters, folks, because earlier the franchise 
was indeed talked into this scenario being a good thing for him by the gaslighting, God-smacked words of Vincent, almost said Vincent Kennedy Russo. Can you imagine? Um, but the bell does ring as the franchise makes his way to the ring. So, the asylum punishment match for the United States strap. Big Papa Pump defeats the franchise Shane Douglas via the Scott Lounger. Now, Madden wonders aloud if Russo and Bischoff could possibly be angry at the franchise for the Thunder episode that went to hell when Shane Douglas was put in charge. Now, that was absolutely one of my most favorite episodes of WCW Thunder and WCW Must Die. As a side note, check it out in the back catalogs on the North-South Connection Podcast Network. I believe it is episode 13, The Brunch Association, which is indeed a parody on The Breakfast Club. That was a fun episode to do. Everything sort of seemed to fall into place with the references and what have you. It may be my favorite episode of all times, now that I'm thinking about it. Of course, aside from this one that I'm painstakingly recording and giving out to all of you right now, of course. The Asylum, that being the actual cage, is so wonky and stupid looking. But they do have a, a camera in the top of it, and you get a nice, what I'm calling like a gun barrel shot as the Asylum comes down. The gun barrel shot being a reference to the uh, opening segment of most James Bond movies where, you know... He walks and poses. Well, he walks, turns, and shoots. Uh, Side note, come at me. George Lazenby has the best gun barrel because the fucker gets down on one knee and keeps his hat on, and he's like, what's up? I'm shooting you. The franchise takes control early with a low blow, uh, then hits his sweet reverse Kurt Henning neck flip thing that he does. It's the only thing the franchise is worth a damn for. The boys need to remember that they can't Irish whip one another into this asylum, though, because there are a few Irish whip fuck-ups, but they're not bad. They're not, they're not glaringly bad, okay? So I don't want to take away from that, but it's just... And I get where they're coming from. You're still inside the ring, so you feel like you should be able to Irish whip, because even in a cage match, you can Irish whip. But, alas. Um, there is a Shane sold-out chant. And I did a little research and confirmed he did indeed sell out a few bingo halls in his career, so they're not exactly lying. The franchise, during this match, digs into his trunks and obtains the power of the punch. Um, There is a nice body slam to the cage from Big Papa Pump to the franchise after he no-sells these powers of the, these punches that are powered, like he no-sells getting punched with like brass knucks or whatever. And this slam into the cage does indeed lead to the Steiner recliner, and that's the ball game. Now, I gave this match two and a half wrestling stars. No silly gimmick attached to it, no anything like that. And here's why, and this is, I'm going to get serious again for just one second, and then I'll I'll get back to the nonsense. So, these asylum matches are just, to me, are not a good idea on paper. They're not a good idea in execution. But all that being said, this was kind of the best case scenario for one of these types of matches. It was short. In the end, it put over Scott Steiner hard in a sense of like, well, yeah, this is, of course I beat this guy. No sold his his cheating, if you will. And yeah, he maybe got hit in the dick and sold for about 30 seconds. But, you know, in the end, he just body slammed him and put the recliner on him and Shane tapped, you know, so... The Irish whip thing was funny to me because I'm looking for stuff like that, but it didn't really take away from the match. And if you 
say or believe the fact that two and a half wrestling stars is your base for not spectacular, not offensive, just it existed as a wrestling match, and that's exactly what it was. That's what this was. It may be the best asylum match in history. Um, I guess I'll know. Uh, you know, I could I could collect the votes here at the end of the when the gimmick finally goes away, but um, I don't know. It is what it is. Who who would who would have thunk it? Tony confirms that the United States strap is indeed heading to the Great American Bash, still wrapped around the waist of Big Papa Pump Scott Steiner. We cut to the back where Sting is walking calmly to uh, his next battle with the Kidster. The shot then changes to it, it's still the shot of Sting. But it's the shot of Sting walking, but it's on a TV. And we pull out, and and on a little tiny, teeny monitor is, oh shit, dude. It's Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea. But I think he must have ran into Zatanna in the back here uh, and got his mind wiped. Because now we're dealing with the red and yellow Hulk Hogan as he is in full Hulkster garb. And I'm going to keep referencing this mind wipe shit, so I might as well just explain what the Hulk Hogan Terry Bollea identity crisis is. So in the wrestling context, he like kind of pulls a Mick Foley, um, and I guess I don't know. I, I kind of am into it because I, I, I mean I like the various personas of Hulk Hogan, which I've admitted to and cop to. So you've got like the red and yellow, you've got your black and white NWO Hollywood, you've got your Stone Cold Terry Bollea variant, and then you've got like your red and yellow Hollywood variant that's like a heel but wears red and yellow. I don't necessarily think that one's going to be showing up. But I call it the identity crisis because, well, number one, he's having an identity crisis, but I keep referencing these mind wipes. Now, Identity Crisis was a DC Comics miniseries that took place uh, that revealed around uh, terrible crimes being committed to the family members of the DC superheroes. And one of the big reveals, a spoiler alert, for this awesome, yeah, it, yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good for this pretty good miniseries. It's revealed that over time, the Justice League has stolen memories from supervillains who have deducted their secret identities. And when Bruce Wayne discovered that the Justice League was doing this behind his back, they actually took a vote and mind wiped Bruce Wayne. Which leads to the awesome period in Batman's character history where he's a paranoid bastard that, uh, you know, takes no prisoners in terms of uh, he doesn't put up with any shit from the other DC heroes, becomes very paranoid, builds a satellite that orbits and can monitors what every person on the planet does. The satellite comes to life. It becomes an infinite crisis. Uh, we could keep going, but I will stop. But yeah, dude. And Zatanna's the one that does the mind wipes because she can use magic. And so, you know, I guess that would make Hulk Hogan terrible lay bat the Batman, dude. Whoa. Alfred, dude. I, I need some pork, brother. I've got to hit the streets tonight on patrol. Where's Robin, dude? You know, I guess Robin would be Brooktini. Whoa, Brooktini, dude. You better put on some pants, brother. Everybody's going to figure out your secret identity, dude. If you go out patrolling the streets in the little Robin tights, Brooktini. Yeah. I'm going to stop. This is why I got kicked off the North-South Connection Podcast Network feed. Ah. Goodness gracious, great balls of fire. Hey, that's from that movie Top Gun, which you can listen to me review on the North South Connection Podcast Network as well. It's in the back catalog. Um, what happened next? Oh, yeah, so Hulk Hogan's in his red and yellow, yada, yada, yada. Kidman is here. 
and he's come down to the ring, and he is wearing the red and yellow, and he rips his shirt to show his dominance. Madden calls Kidman a hero for constantly beating Hogan like a drum. <laughs> Sting is here now for the aforementioned contest. The bell rings, and so, folks, Billy Kidman, the kidster, defeats Sting, the actor, via Vamp Nanigans. Now, as the match gets started, Scott Hudson talks about how the return of Goldberg has lit a fire underneath everyone. So start get the fire talk started early this Vampiro match. But he also says, including us, you know, indicating that, you know, the announcers are firing on all cylinders and they're amazing tonight. Well, my anger at Scott Hudson making this comment led me to take a lot more notes between the conclusion of this show and now as to what the announcers delivered to the broadcast. So stay tuned. And if he's going to take valuable television time to hype himself, allow me to hype myself. Because recently, here in the Aqua Cave, we released the first episode of our new show, Kingfish, a Shane McMahon audio journey, which we'll review, recap, and have a lot of fun with Shane McMahon's ridiculous commentary, starting with the first episode of Sunday Night Heat, and going all the way until he leaves the show as a broadcast commentator, when he becomes more of a character in, I think, October-ish of 1998. So we'll be releasing those episodes one at a time, and yes... The name of the show is indeed a reference to Shane McMahon's fantastic nickname for Jerry the King Lawler, Kingfish. What up, Kingfish? Anywho, these guys are wrestling, that being Kidman and Sting, at a pretty fast pace, and they are putting on a decent show, so I will give them the credit they deserve. They reverse arm drags until Sting tosses Kidman over the top rope onto the ramp, and it's a really cool spot. Sting then goes outside after Kidman and tosses him from the ramp to the ring and Kidman sells this in a fantastic way by rolling after bumping in the ring all the way to the other side to make it look like Sting threw him from the outside all the way to the other side of the ring. It's what can happen when one athlete is willing to use their body to tell a story of the other wrestler's dominance and uh, you know it just goes to show that Billy Kidman's a team player and uh, I don't know. It's, it's a nice thing to be, I suppose. I don't know why I decided to get on the Kidman train right there, I am, although I am a fan of his work, I guess. But anywho, Sting then runs from the outside, jumps, takes a massive leap, and as he's doing this, we get a fantastic and massive Tony Schiavone, Sting! And Sting does indeed jump over the top ropes and throws a Stinger line. And then, just to, to you know promise and follow through on my words from just a few moments ago scott hudson says just like robbie knievel getting that run up the ramp go over the top and wipe off the superstar billy kidman okay <laughs> what mark madden says robbie knievel and tony Schiavone says yes he said robbie knievel they got quite a lift off scott good call and then this sentence happens sting has always been one for just exceptional leg strength and leg spring, and he showed it full force. At this point, Kidman DDT's Sting, so Shivani's one run, run on sentence transitions to right there, but Kidman with a great comeback with a move of his own to get the even advantage. Sting eventually hits a stinger splash. He locks in the Scorpion Deathlock. Tori distracts the referee. And holy shit, here comes the comma crazy war boy himself, Vampiro, with a blowtorch. He smacks Sting in the skull with the blowtorch. Kidman covers. The referee is no longer distracted and gets the one, two, three. 
Now, there's a lot of post-match stuff, so let's wrap up the match discussion. I give this match three minutes. What the hell is that? Well, you know, it's like three stars, because that's the thing I always do. But I give it minutes, because I think it was just like a three-minute match. And you know what? It was a decent way to spend three minutes with this program that honestly hasn't been great so far. So, thanks, Billy and Steve. Who'd have thunk it? Post-match, Vampiro has a gasoline can to go with his blowtorch. It's a uh, Vince Russo registered trademark heel beatdown. The Hulk, Hogan, Terry Bollea music hits. And out comes, as previously mentioned, the red and yellow Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea variant. So holy shit, do I still call him Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea? I don't know. But the kidster shits a red and yellow brick when he sees this new attire and he walks into a massacre. Vamp also eats a little bit of Hulk Hogan's cartoonish offense when Hulk Hogan does the wind-up punch. You know, where he, like, spins the fist, and it's like... Uh, Bischoff now comes down to the aisle and gets in the ring with a steel chair. He hits Hulk Hogan with this chair. But the power of the red and yellow is too much. It has no effect. And so Hulk Hogan takes the chair and threatens Eric Bischoff. However, I mentioned previously that Shane Douglas had some experience selling out the bingo halls. Well, Hulk Hogan never worked matches in those bingo halls, and so he doesn't realize that while he's taunting Eric Bischoff with this chair, he's also waving it dangerously close to his own face. And out of nowhere, an absolutely beautiful Van Catenator takes place, and the cat makes Hogan eat this chair. Horace Hogan is here now, and he joins the beatdown. <laughs> that, that no good Horace Hogan, dude. And Hulk Hogan truly is at the mercy of the new blood. Horace Hogan, as he enters the ring, has a trash can with him, like an aluminum trash can. And the kidster, Billy Kidman, rips the red and yellow off of Hulk Hogan. Vampiro, God, I actually called it Vampiro on instinct, does indeed have the gasoline. They throw the shirt into the trash can. Vamp pours. He lights a match. And the red and yellow burns just like the Wrestling Observer in 1995, dude. And they have disintegrated the symbol that is Hulk Hogan. Words Tony Schiavone delivers to the audience and should be immortalized in the annals of sports entertainment. Vamp is then trying to drag Sting to the fire. And none of the other members of the New Blood help. They're all watching, but they're kind of like, eh. I don't really know if I want to be associated with this part of the narrative because it just, you know... <laughs> it's like we're, every, it's, we're okay we're a wrestling show but then oh no I don't, <laughs> keep me away from the fire stuff um, but holy shit there is indeed someone that can rescue the stinger chronic 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 that you know chronic music hits with that voice and oh my god fans they actually have chronic 419 shirts modeled in the old Austin 316 and on the back, for the love of God, it says, God, a minute, with a question mark. They're awful, and I kind of really, really want one. Hogan is up, though, before the chronic arrives, so technically, I didn't need their help, dude. Yeah, my contract says that they're no good chronic. Doesn't need to protect me, dude. Tony promises Jeff Jarrett and Flair for the big gold strap are next, as Flair walks towards the camera in a robe, no street clothes, and Jeff Jarrett walks and spins his guitar as we head to commercial. 
back from commercial now with a last-minute hype for the Great American Bash, focusing on Rick and David, and Jeff Jarrett makes his entrance. To follow up again on my earlier point with the announcers being on fire, Tony Schiavone says, Wherever you are at home, in your office, with friends, in a club, in a bar, or somewhere, you need a seatbelt to be strapped in your seat for this jet ride we call Monday Nitro. God, I love Tony Schiavone run-ons. The announcers do warn us a stipulation has been added to this match that there must be a winner, and if necessary, they will go into overtime. David Flair is with Jeff Jarrett for the ring entrance, but David is wearing a striped shirt indicating that he is going to be the referee. Jeff Jarrett is wearing one of my favorite versions of his glasses. I actually kind of wish I had a pair of these. And uh, there are a lot of signs here in Salt Lake City for Jeff Jarrett. It must be a Mormon thing, which is totally fine. They probably believe that Jeff Jarrett's the type of sports entertainer they can get behind. He's the type of dude who probably obviously held on to his virginity until he was married. And that's totally cool, man. Good for you, Jeff. It's awesome. It's great. I don't know why I'm still talking about it. Why are you still? I'm not talking about it. You're talking about it. I'm not talking about it. You're talking. I'm not. Okay. I also want to know what it is that Jeff Jarrett says to himself during his pyro. And what specifically he says to himself to himself that makes him want to do that crazy hand wave or swipe thing that he does. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. As soon as I mentioned it, Jarrett's like, he like cuts the air. Like, get out of the way. Come on, slap ass, move it. I don't know, but I really would like to know what he is indeed saying to himself. Ric Flair is here now, and ironically, folks, he is not wearing his street clothes. He's finally in the robes and what have you. I say ironically because whether or not you want to believe it, from a storyline perspective, this would be the one time it would make sense for Flair to actually come down to the ring in his street clothes because him coming down in the robe and his wrestling attire implies that he stopped hunting for the family long enough to get all dolled up and wrestle. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Madden puts over the Flair should be the champ, and he puts over Nash as well for giving Flair the belt, which is just weird because Madden should hate this. I just, you know, I know I'm not the writer of the character, dude, but I just feel like this is very much out of character. The bell rings. So, the main event for the interim, actual, handed-to WCW World Heavyweight Strap, Jeff Jarrett defeats Ric Flair via sports entertainment. As the match begins, Tony Schiavone guides us through the recent Flair narrative, and I quote, The bell sounds were off and running with David Flair as a referee. Ric Flair was handed the world title by world champion Kevin Nash in segment one. Flair is returning after unexplained, still undiagnosed medical condition or physical condition that dropped him to him knees a couple weeks ago. The Batman is here with security and the Fleer family. And if you watch the big screen, you can actually see Ric Flair leave the ring and tackle Vince Russo. Uh, you know, And it's kind of cool because the camera's just on Russo, and you can see the big screen Flair's chopping Jeff, and then Flair runs, and then all of a sudden Russo's tackled. I don't know. It's you know, good for them. They get a directing point that I award on the new show UPN, Unveiling Potent Numbers, which covers the first six episodes of SmackDown. The first two are out there on the Aqua Cave. You should give it a listen. It's a, uh, it's more of a serious take on this genre of television, that being professional wrestling, um, whereas this show is obviously gags, tongue-in-cheek. I mean, it's 2000. What do you want? You want a serious show about it? No. No, that's why we're here. 
Anywho, as Flair is assaulting Russo, Russo's boots are flailing back and forth, and it just kind of made me laugh, and I may have rewound it like three times. Oh, well. Uh, Jeff Jarrett saves Papa Russo from this beating and takes Flair back to the ring for some chair stuff, and he throws him off the ramp as well. But I'm just sitting in my chair, like, zoned out and sleeping because it's Jeff Jarrett and Ric Flair walking around the outside. Like, seriously, like, we've done this a thousand times. Uh, Future WCW Commissioner Mike Sanders and Primetime Elix Skipper are uh, once again members of R&B Security, and they're holding on to Reed Flair and making him watch his daddy bleed for our sport. Reed, though, does have a good face on about it, and he's cheering for Rick, and he's participating. And I will I will take a moment to say this. It could be really easy for a 13-year-old to go out here and look stupid doing this. And it could be really easy for them to shit on it and be like, I don't want to do that. And it could be really easy on them to just be bad at this. Clearly, sports entertainment, wrestling, acting, performing, whatever you want to call it, runs in the Fleer family DNA. Because, you know, Reed's having a good time with it at 13. Rick's obviously good at it. Charlotte's obviously good at it. So, I don't know. It's cool to see. Um, it's nice that it's out. I, I don't know. I was going to say it's nice that it's out there that the Flair family can go back and watch this. I don't know. That's, that's, uh, I'm going to stop. going to stop because I mean it to be a positive thing, and I don't want it to seem across like it's a negative thing. Um, Beth. <laughs> okay, this is great. This takes us back to the comedy of WCW and away from the serious real-world stuff. The camera's on Beth, and she yells, you can do it, which is fine, <laughs> but, but come on, she yells, you can do it, like, it's just, I don't know, it's not her fault, it's not her fault, Flair is bleeding a lot, though, now, but he fights back, and David Flair tries to end this uh, sports entertainment scenario early by grabbing a Statue of Liberty, Rick intercepts the Statue of Liberty shot and takes it from David, slams the Statue of Liberty statue up pawn the skull of David Flair, but nothing happens. It doesn't break, and it looks really bad. Um, Jarrett takes this opportunity, though, to throw Rick over the top rope at the feet of Vince Russo, and Russo gets in a few bat shots. Eventually, Jarrett gets Flair back in the ring and puts him in his own figure four maneuver. What can a wife and a mother and a young son be thinking? Charles Robinson runs down to the ring and counts Flair's shoulders down. One, two, no, a kick out. Flair gets to the ropes, stands up, and Jarrett is whipped into the ropes. Flair pops into an inside cradle, which was the finish from their previous match, and it only gets two, but good for them for making the callback. Uh, Flair gets hit with a low blow, does the Flair flip to the outside, ducks the clothesline, gets hit with the clothesline. I mean, this, there's just so much nonsense coming up in this match, I don't even know why I'm going through verbatim, but I do it for you, for the sport. Uh, Flair nails Vince Russo. Beth... Fleer again appears on camera and yells, keep that gold in a way that makes her seem like a very unflattering gold lover. It's very strange. Uh, figure four now, but Jeff Jarrett kicks Rick into Charles Robinson, who is now the referee as Rick tries to apply the maneuver. A shit ton of nonsense. Guess what? Vince Russo ends up with the referee shirt on his back, and Flair eventually eats a guitar. One, two, three. I want to stab myself in the skull as I'm reciting the sports entertainment nonsense that is this match. It was awful. I gave it one gold-loving stepmom, and Jeff Jarrett now has the world championship yet again. The audience revolts, throws garbage in the ring. 
Russo does awkward crotch chops. Beth and Reed Flair leave with R&B security. Were they on the line in this match? It doesn't make any sense, and it's annoying me. Shirtless Charles Robinson consoles Rick as the copyright hits. Yes, I rushed to get out of that match because it's just so bad. This Rick and Jeff Jarrett street fight, like, I'm just done with it. I'm done. I'm done with Jeff Jarrett's main event style. I, I, I can't. I can't believe I'm still doing this, but I do it for the love of being able to make fun of it. But this was a really bad example of even being able to do that. Like I, some of these, like the Kevin Nash, uh, Jeff Jarrett match that was like this um, in, on our last episode of Thunder, I think it was. Whatever Nash wins the strap, and yeah, it was a triple threat. It's like under five minutes, and there's like an average of 1.2 sports entertainment events per second. Uh, it's the, you know, the, yeah, it's the Vince Russo, Andrew McCarthy. It was our last episode. So that was a lot of fun. This is the opposite of that. This was a match that was probably only like six or seven minutes and had just as many sports entertainment things, but it was not done in an entertaining way. And I think that's going to be the best sentence that I can use to sum up the difference between Nitro and Thunder. And again, while I feel like this stuff works so well when we cover Thunder, when it's done in a live environment on Nitro that's trying to keep pace with what Raw's doing, it falls flat on its face and you sort of see it fall apart at the seams. I'm not saying Thunder is some sort of great revelation, but Thunder does the Russo, and maybe the Russo shit works best in a recorded environment when you're not into the plots. I wouldn't say that's the case in WWF, but I don't know. It just is another example of a Nitro that comes across as having a frantic pace and no payoff. And I guess that will lead us in to the next episode of WCW Must Die, which will indeed cover a thunder. Will Goldberg appear? I'm not sure. But we're going to be in probably, and this is an assumption, heavy holdover mode until the Great American Bash because now they have the world champion that they want. They've got to start positioning Kevin Nash as the contender. And, you know, like I had mentioned earlier, this is there's a lot of weeks in between Slambury and the Great American Bash. And that's a lifetime in Vince Russo booking. So if Thunder is a holdover episode, I got to think with my fingers crossed and I'm hoping for it, it could be a lot of fun because they might just have to come up with stupid shit that doesn't matter to the overall narrative that will at least make us laugh. And after all, folks, here on WCW Must Die in the Aqua Cave, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get you to relax and have a good time at the expense of some shitty wrestling. And with that in mind, come back and join us the next time we dive deep and WCW will indeed inch one episode closer to the moment they must die. Kind of had to walk back to the actual catchphrase there, folks. So thanks for sticking with me, and we'll see you next time.